I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of Rackn, and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode is about supply chains, but because of recent events with the Log4j vulnerability and the challenge of patching and fixing a library that is literally in everything for years and years, uh, we talked about supply chain in the context of software and Log4j. And this is a critical, critical topic. Uh, our conversation about it was very thoughtful, and we really covered the angles of what it takes to produce and maintain a supply chain for software and the alternatives and things to consider when you build anything, uh, software products or physical products, and how embedded systems and components can be in your designs. I know you will appreciate it. Enjoy. You find um, there has been a history of good or bad maintenance of the of the repo or of the package, things like this. And you know, if I go out and look for the the various KPIs, the various metrics, yeah. Um, I can I can find some, but I have to I would have to go through a pretty serious amount of work and amount of investigation for for that if I were building anything of you know a lot of complexity. Now you say that you pin most of your packages, right? Yeah. So in a sense, you're going to kind of do your own quality, at least at some level, you're doing your own quality control and not leaving it, you know, to to the outside world. But that strikes me as a as a necessary requirement for building systems, particularly if, in fact, you have access to that information through um, through open source. I'm surprised that nobody's chasing that. I, I think they do. Uh, and and the, the topic for today is supply chain reset. And, and actually, I would suggest let's keep rolling on, you know, log4j and what the way you're taking it is effectively a software supply chain question. It is a um, software supply chain question. Absolutely. And the, because the challenge is log4j has, you know, it's used everywhere. It is the logging. So every Java application is using log4j probably even if they don't mean to it's just so <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. right because if you you use something that's written to follow any standards it's also included it's also logging you know it's gonna it has logging it's gonna use log4j um and then the, so the challenge becomes and the, this is where the pinning is really tricky, and we hit this all the time. And it's not just with the GoLang stuff; it's also with our subdependence. Like we depend on Curtain for image-based deployment. It's a Ubuntu maintained library for for writing stuff in, and we don't use much of it, but you know we use it. Um, and when we and they don't want to take our patches, <laughs> so we're we're in a position where we have to pull their changes into our fork and evaluate their changes and pull it into our fork um, just to see what's see what's going on. But the same thing is going to be true with every module, every dependency that we embed. Um, and the the challenge that that I see in our industry is that if you're using a module that is behind and right or you're using an older you're using a an older version of a module and they fix it and we we see this all the time right sure you fix it they fix it in the current version i expect people to do and then the new version has it but the behaviors on that new version are different than the version you might be using so it's not just a question of can i pull in the patched code um you have to, it's you have to go through all of the all of the testing and and all of the corner testing you know that which, which is why the CentOS stream stuff is such, and a whole bunch of people are coming off mute, so I'm going to shut up in a second, why the CentOS stream stuff is so potentially disruptive. Because with CentOS streams, it means that Red Hat's only going to be updating and patching 
the very latest version of CentOS. And if you want a you know, update on a version that you depend on, you have to incorporate the new behaviors of the OS into your system to get the latest changes. That, does that make sense? Right. So there's, there's, we, we like to think it's just an API stuff, but the behaviors of systems are much more a part of the supply chain components than anything else. And I think that's true even with physical goods too. It's, it's why people are so opinionated about uh, stable versus rolling release uh, distributions. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I came off mute was to to mention that you're talking about direct dependencies. When you get the third and fourth layer of dependencies where you're using a package that depends on a package that depends on a package, the ripple, the ripple of that, you know, security fix, how long does it take to get to you and what changes, you know? Anyone in DevOps who's had to deal with uh, Node.js package scans uh, is is well and very painfully aware of uh, of that problem. Anybody building JS, you know, production code out of JS is is going to be seriously impacted, and it just it's a it's an almost a fact of life. So the question is, what do you what do you do to take measures to at least mitigate it, if not prevent it? Yeah. Well, the, one of the only things that I can think of is that you get the major CDNs to do it and push it, so that every time you have a linkage to some oh. distribution network, it's checking to make sure that you have the right patch. But to the point made earlier, yeah, there's over a million just in the Node.js world. That are being affected by it, and yeah. it is. What, what do you mean by having the right patch, Jerome? Pardon? What do you mean by having the right patch? Having a patch that's the the uh, declared, you know, authenticable, you know, authorized patch, or having the right yeah. patch in the sense that it ain't breaking stuff. It's. Well, there's talk amongst the community that there should be some sort of an authorization mechanism so that if you are using Node, for example, that they become the authority that has a way to push and double check that any extension written under Node, for example, would have been somehow qualified as being uh, patched, right? Because if you write a line of script that's dependent upon another line of script that's running an extension that happens to come from Node and you're using the CDN version of Node rather than downloading it every single time, you know, on your daily basis. And by the way, this also works in similarity to Visual Studio, which a lot of people use for their codification. Um, that maybe you sort of need, just like you have, a, a, you know, a, a domain authority, right, a registrar, that you have some sort of a registration or authority in that sense to be able to start pushing stuff out. Now, Google was looking into this a while ago, but I don't know what I don't know. It sounds also like it should be hand in glove with a lot of the suggested approaches for the use of software Bill of materials. Absolutely. But I would make that as hand in mitten. (laughs) No, no, no. I used to think about it. You want things close together to be under one umbrella as opposed to individualized because that's a larger threat vector. But I have to bring up SolarWinds because wasn't that exactly what SolarWinds was? Proposing, to, you know, you know, they were they were supposed to be the trusted source for these libraries and packages, and then they, you know, because of that, somebody was able to inject a, you know, malign component. Or, yeah, let's yeah. Say, you know, <laughs> yeah, but the, the operative word was supposed to be. Yeah, it's the yeah. single source. It's the single source, you know, problem. Yeah. It, Distributed versus single point of failure, uh, controlled versus uh, velocity in, uh, in in updates. 
so you basically have to have com warring competitors who are who are each screening the repo and trying to make trying to find well, find it, fault it, the other. It, it almost it almost sounds like a you know a, a situation in which alternative sources or alternative versions um need to be addressed need to be considered and, and that just makes that would just make me crazy i i, I can't i can't imagine how you would do that you're you're li we're literally walking into how red hat became the the juggernaut in linux is because yeah. fundamentally what they're doing they're just sort of they're certifying packages that's there's not much else well, you could say the same for Bitnami. I'm sorry yeah. for Bitnami. And and that's really, really dangerous in my view, because I don't know if I wear my you know old CIO type hat, if I'm doing a Bitnami download of a build for a cloud. Pardon the expression, but at this juncture, I would be up shit's creek without a paddle. Mm. Because every service on every cloud could be impacted. True. That's true. Ah, oh, boy. I, 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 this is a subject. I think we need to revisit or reiterate the best practices in software development when you are entering you know, any in taking any input into, you know, as a as a parameter to into a function, you have to qualify that. You have to make sure it's uh, it's it's clean. There's no script being injected to that. Just just like we do that in SQL, most of people do it in SQL, not all, like SQL injection. This log4j attack was very much like SQL injection. So I think that's that's one thing, and the second thing is the ideal, the, the dream goal will be to be able to nuke a library in a running software and or repl replace it. You can nuke it, and the, if you're not logging it, it's not in the end of the world. I think, unless you are your functionality is based on the logs, uh, but um, the ability to nuke a library and, and put a new one during application when it's running that that is um, something of a, a dream goal which we should strive for i think but um, we'll, we'll get there someday it's just, i think security and security is a relative sort of construct anyways so will happen. The, the, so thing, the, the thing that i go ahead rocky the question i have for you guys is whether you saw how the exploit uh could be used if you actually injected, use log4j to put something into an actual log and have that log message migrate to various places like in a cloud and suddenly somebody who is tracking down a problem clicks on that message and it will actually infect that local machine if that person clicks on it using an app that has Java uh, it infects the local machine and gets through the firewall and onto your intranet via being placed within a log message. So it's it's really insidious and yeah. it goes. I think beyond. there actually was. I think there actually was one report of an exploit that was something similar to that, Rocky. Yeah, and there there was a tweet thread that explained exactly the process how. It gets here, it gets here, it gets here. It just stays as a log message. Someone clicks on it uh, with the wrong app and it infects the entire intranet from that point. Uh, it is quite literally a Java virus. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, have, that person says it's actually uh, the this older virus that, that worked, uh, that was really bad. But so it... It's even to the point of it doesn't have to even be much in your system, but because of the complexity we have there and the insidious way some of these people think, uh, it's just 
yeah. even right. even the the whole supply chain thing becomes like you guys were saying ridiculously difficult and you can't leave it to one company you can't leave it to uh to one person and you got to you got to be able to reload libraries and 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 it's literally a huge ticking time bomb for cloud because yeah. the cloud is so ubiquitous at this point that it can take any cloud down uh, one of these exploits and the cloud has so much complexity and so many moving parts that it has no control of because it could be a vendor's piece of code that injects it into the log it can be an application uh, just someone who's who bought an AWS instant for five minutes, shut it down uh, and mm -hmm. created a log that would be interesting to the AWS uh, operators. And right. that's all it takes. Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the modern equivalent of uh, dropping USB keys, you know, in the parking lot. Oh, what is this? Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, or or cluster bombs where you know um, they get dropped and then they get forgotten for for decades and all of a sudden some little kid finds it and oops yeah or a farmer plows over it these are landmines <laughs> these, these are these are ugly are ugly landmines that date back a generation before what we're working with really think about it. Well, this is, and there's going to be a lot of, you know, it's going to be a lot of unpatched code that's going to still be vulnerable. Uh, In factories. Keep, keep sniffing for it. Yeah. Oh, oh factories. Goodness, yeah. And, and also IoT. There are lots and lots of industrial applications that have code that's been running on them forever. That's some of them is uploaded from CD-ROM still. Yeah. Well, and, let me tell well, you. Go out to any oil field or gas field. Exactly. Or space. Yeah. Log4j actually hit the Mars rover. Yes. And oh let me tell you that it's also hitting a lot of the pharmaceutical companies that are still running Windows NT on yes. some of their machines. What? Not 95? They've advanced? Uh, <laughs> yeah, believe it or not. Because um, oh, some of them, I, yeah. I will lay you odds, Windows 95 is still running somewhere and maybe at Expedia, which is I, where. Listen, I, <laughs> Rocky, you're preaching to the choir, but where I'm really concerned about it is there are certain manufacturers of equipment that are still running very back level code in terms of their OS. Yep. And those pieces of equipment are connected to things that are running real-time sensors, which may have Java code on them. Yep. And they're going to keep reinfecting each other over and over again. And it's getting to the level where somebody asked me yesterday, is it possible it could be in firmware? Oh, yeah. And my answer was, of course. And so the, the follow-up question is, and what are the manufacturers of the equipment doing about it? <laughs> Nothing. Well, yeah, exactly. How, how many of those manufacturers are now dead because their stuff has just been running in the field and the company no longer exists, but since the stuff keeps running, nobody does anything about it. And that's well, it's, the IoT problem and manufacturing problem is that there are lots of companies that that are extinct, but their software lives on and their firmware lives on, especially their firmware and hardware. Well, apparently where it's most predominant is in electricity. Oh, yes. I had a so, friend who so I'm waiting for, you know, like I'm not waiting for it to happen, but there I know in, in this side of the border, there's uh, amongst the... Uh, major providers, PowerStream and, you know, others, Hydro One, they're actually looking through all of the client base to find a way to start mitigating that risk because they could take the whole grid down. Well, heck, yeah. And, yeah, here's good old PG&E who had to uh, install all these 
smart controllers or semi-smart controllers in the past couple of few years, what do you lay odds that every single one of those runs Java? And so all of PG&E network is now has to be, everything has to be retouched and re-uploaded once they come up with a solution, which is months away because of how they move. Which I, and and I know we want to, easy to criticize them for being slow i mean the the they're actually doing the right supply chain fix and patching and considerations and in, in pulling all this stuff through because of the expense of rolling the patch in part well, maybe they're doing the right thing or maybe they're ignoring it at the moment but they will eventually do the maybe, right thing maybe and maybe they're and maybe they're just slow i mean i i do agree at, at the, the point of of a lot of this stuff is the ability to quickly roll through Changes like have like if if you're deploying these systems without the idea that you can then roll a patch globally through the system, then you're you're actually creating potentially creating harm. And this this wasn't wasn't even a consideration back when these devices were created, designed, and deployed, because the only people who had access were the corporation that deployed them possibly the user, not even always the user, and a physical break in the network that would, you know, you'd have to crack the network to do it. There was no no concept of this sort of attack back when these things were deployed. And it's just Uh, barely getting to that point now. And I have to run and take the the dog to the vet. (laughs) No worries. (laughs) Thanks for joining, though. Um, I mean, I, I, to me, it's, John, go ahead. I, I, I can try and promote that, you if uh, you want video. Oh, no, it's, it's okay. Um, you guys don't want the video. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> um, just using the one specific example of PG&E um, smart meters, when they did roll them out, that was brought up as one of the concerns because the, the analog meters they're replacing were incredibly reliable. And there's a lot of concern that the digital meters would be unreliable and how would they maintain them. And uh, it was essentially discounted that that would never happen because of, you know, yucky, yuck, bloody blah, we're so awesome. Um, and obviously since then, you know, nobody believes that. But at the time when they were rolled out, um, it was the benefit of being able to uh, uh gather data real time and to be able to turn entire swaths of meters off and on um, and, you know, provide some kind of calibration uh, to the the power grid was outweighed any concerns uh, much, you know, well, you know, whatever. I haven't quite left yet. And yes, Sean is right there, but I actually worked for a company that was doing smart meters uh, a startup that was competing with GE back and running tests on PG&E networks. And there wasn't that concern within either the company or PG&E. These guys would run out with the equivalent of a USB card and stick them in an intermediate node to upload new firmware. And sometimes the VP of the company would do that and just take it out of the the firmware designers hands and run it up the literally run it up the pole without telling anyone without it going through qa or anything else like that so i'm sorry without it going through qa with i was qa and they they would just take it from the developers and run it up the pole and this was one of the reasons why i was having a conniption fit it was also they had totally redesigned most of the the network stack, and they were running power line modems and all sorts of weird things. And it's like, uh, nope. But yes, and this was in in the early, the mid 90s. So we have no idea what that software is like, because if the company was anything like the company I was working for, and a lot of those people went on to work for GE and PG&E, then it's still out there. And it's, well, it works. Don't touch it. Philosophy. So anyway, now I'm going to run. Bye bye. <laughs> Does anybody so, know what's happening with the telcos? 
with respect to log4j? Oh, they've been very, very quiet. Too quiet. That's why I'm asking the question. Yeah, I I would agree with you. All is well. Move on. (laughs) 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 All all of the cable routers, all of the set-top boxes, like that, that's... Uh, actually, I have a friend in Cable Labs who who kind of dropped a hint that there was there was a lot of scrambling going on, but I don't know. Oh my goodness! All, all the the like the embedded uh, applications in the TVs, all of the like Roku, all of the over the top boxes, all of the embedded stuff. Uh, there's an enormous amount of of logging going on there. It would be yeah almost inconceivable that they wouldn't get hit by something. The question is how how isolated or how contained have they built their systems and it's probably yep. not that it's probably well, not I, that awesome. Yeah. I, I think the right fix the, the right way to fix this it has to come from Java core language itself. Updating the JVM somehow, and and then qualifying the sort of the input to the logging function. Otherwise, you can't find all these libraries and replace them because it's cumbersome. I think easier to replace the JVM than I've lived through JVM mandatory JVM updates right back. A uh, decade ago, when we had to, there was a time zone when when we rolled out the time zone stuff, and the one dot six became basically a mandatory JVM replacement, and it was hideous, hideously, hideously disruptive and and breaking. Um, and that's also assuming that that devices are even capable of upgrading the JVM. Right. I mean, look look at uh, look at the older servers with with, with ILO or IDRAC. You cannot upgrade Java on them. They require yeah. an, an older version of the client Java to, to work in the first place. Yeah, you'd have um, to patch probably hundreds of different JVM versions yeah. and then roll those out. No. The, the <laughs> only place where you can mitigate this is at the network level. It, it's like you, you need to be able to control communication between, between devices. That's the only place where you can mitigate this. Yeah. I would assume that's what all those IoT devices or manufacturers are doing is just monitoring the shit out of the networks and trying to filter traffic. I don't think they have any choice. If if you were if you were to be mounting a forensic project to kind of take this on to um, you know Sarjit's suggestion. By the by, the Java community itself. One of the things that would strike me is I would want to know. I I would want the historical record, you know, from Maven and and watch and look at everybody who's been pulling down packages, um, using mm-hmm. you know a, probably the predominant Java, you know. Package and build manager. I that would be the place where I would start to look. Where would I find that? Does it exist anywhere? And if it is, if, if it does exist, in whose hands does it you know reside? And and how would you get access to it? Authorized use access access to it. Any thoughts? <laughs> I, the, the untangling that web is huge. Um, exactly. It, it is huge. And we, mm. we have also shot ourselves in, in the foot with our historical security practices. Like we, we, oh. we used to, like the defense in debt, uh, it, it's fine for north-south defense, but east-west, which is what this shows showcases, it doesn't protect against that. Yeah. Which is why it, we've been pushing towards like zero trust in, in, in the last couple of years, because you you cannot trust your peer anymore. That that is how network infiltration happens these days. It's not a direct attack; it's it's a side channel attack almost always. 
Yeah, I, it's the, when we had that. I don't know if y'all remember the big MySQL injection issue where there was a SQL server bug that would then search for seek other attack a worm back in the worm days. I mean, this is and maybe this is just turning of the worm, so to speak. But we're back. This is this is a, this is what we would classically call a worm, right? It's potentially you know using using a a weak point to infect through the system. So Rich, I have a question. If you were gonna go down that road and do the backtrace, um, how would you be able to find anything that was a custom, custom package for Log4j uh, hosted on some Apache server somewhere? Yeah, I, I... I would, I, I, that's a question I, I don't think I could answer, but I know that I would have to start by looking at who had actually been using these packages and who, you know, I, I, if I were, if I were taking the approach of a, I, I would go looking at whoever's running the servers and has the law, has in fact the historical use of Maven on, yeah. so that you could go back and actually look at who's been pulling down and building and rebuilding in their development efforts. And, and uh, if you, in fact you knew of a, um, of a tainted version somewhere, if that had come to light, you could track that down and, and, at the moment, I think the only, the only, actually, I do know. I would, I would actually go to Sonatype. Sonatype actually owns the company. It owns the group out of Texas somewhere that actually runs the servers, probably has all of the logs. Uh, so it doesn't answer your question, Joanne, but I would, you know, I know where I would have to start. Right. Because I'm thinking about all of the forks that people that, you know, I'm going to fork it from wherever. Yeah. And I'm going to write a few yeah. lines of code to make it customizable to my needs. And I'm going to throw it on an Apache stack and Bob's my uncle. Yep. And I don't know. I mean, I cannot fathom how long it would take to backtrack all of those downloads. Because even if it's a download and a and an upload, you know, of a new repository or a new fork or whatever, there is no guarantee that that's going to tell you what those customized no. stacks. The only thing that would tell you is who's been touching it and who's been making who's been making regular use of it no 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 hold on you, you can't you can't track these things you cannot track log4j uh, just through the downloads because i know no, 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 I, no, no, I was no, writing code that. we we will we will download it to one you know file server and 100 or 200 developers will have at it because they can grab local libs and, and install it or sure. use it. Just, as, I mean, just as, as Rob was saying uh, when we first started the conversation, when you're doing this, you generally pin those labs, those labs. You, you basically keep them in house and, you know, this is what I'm, this is what I'm using. This is what we've got. So boom. Um, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I'm just saying, I wouldn't know where else to start. Uh, well, I, no. I, I think that it is um, what we were talking about, what the, the IoT providers are probably forced to do. I think everyone else is just like, well, forced to do the same thing, have to passively um, wait for traffic and then backtrace and deal with it there. I don't think there is any other way of dealing with it. There's just, uh, it's, yeah. It's That's uh, why the, the problem yeah. though, like waiting the, for a Wi-Fi. The... I'm sorry, go ahead. 
the, the, the issue with, with, with monitoring traffic, particularly with, with, with Java packages and Maven, is that most would have a local mirror yes. uh, or a proxy. And, and even with the, without that, they would have the packages cached locally. I've run into situations where a package that was years outdated, it wasn't even available anymore, was still being used because it was being cached and nobody caught it. Okay. Well, that, that, Until that, the, the, the particular, like uh, the, the, the builder machine was, uh, was re, uh, recreated and the, the cache was gone. Well, this goes back to Joanne's point about, you know, go, go knock on the doors of all the CDNs and, and look at what's, what's, what's living out there. Yeah. Right. Actually, I think this is, I think in a way, this is a similar problem to what, um, in, in a very archaic way of what um, uh, network engineers that manage uh, facilities at a site deal with, with uh, rogue access points, uh, uh, people popping those in constantly because mm -hmm. people are people and they, you know, they don't like something to do or want to simplify something or whatever, and they pop in an access point, pop it on the on the network and mess up the network security. Um, and it happens all the time and it's just human behavior. So I think much in the same way, they have to deal with it with port authorization and different other uh, um, tools to try to mitigate it, but they can't eliminate it. They just have to wait for the event to happen. Yeah, I think you are going through a network route, but but I think the the most common common denominator in this case is JVM, but that's that's hard to do as well. So well, no, I, was just I mean, just look at the, the look of, at the you constantly have to wait for it to happen, and not specifically networking itself, but just you have to wait for the event because there's there's just too many variables. You can't keep on top of it. Yeah, I think this is the case for centralized. Um, software consumption. So just imagine if this logging function was just an API from a central place or five places <laughs> or three cloud providers, it would be so easy to fix it was at those five places, not like billions of places. Um, and another, another thing is, another aspect uh, is that look at the difference between vendor provided software and open source or the community, this is a community-based, Java is community-based, it's not open source. So look at that difference. So you can't even track who has it. You can track if somebody was paying some, even a penny for it. It's free, and then now you don't know who has it. I, like, I, no I'm one keeps track of it. Oh my goodness, <laughs> so you, you opened up so many, <laughs> so many avenues with those comments. That's interesting. I, I'm going to put on my devil's advocate hat on, on now. And 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 try to advocate for why centralized is it's still not a good idea. Uh, first one it is again su supply chain management. Uh, sure, uh, a centralized repository would be better for pushing out updates, but it is much worse for guaranteeing that what you are putting into your software as a library has been vetted. Right. Look at Golang, for example. You cannot you cannot cache or, or, or proxy Golang packages because it straight goes straight to GitHub, uh, which means that you cannot lock down your packages other than, than having your your the, your log file that, that just compares to checksum. But but you, you you cannot have a local copy of it, which means that exactly. if if the central repository goes down, <clears throat> AWS, well, uh, then Suddenly, your whole supply chain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would never happen. No, you're, you're. And actually, I'm not saying it's a solution because we have seen well, with the solar winds that was centralized updating stuff that caused all that mess. Right? It was vendor provided. I mean, it's it, the, the fix, uh, fixing all these things is a relative construct or relative idea, like. Can you make it more secure? It's not like it's secure 100%. We're never secure 
Uh, yeah, on that part, I agree. There's there's no way to guarantee 100% security. There's no civil bullet either, because again, as as, as we established, there's arguments in favor and against each approach. Mitigation is the only sensible approach. Like, like reducing the blast radius, um, like reducing the or the locking down the environment for the processes. In, in, in this actual case, containerization, I feel actually is helping. Uh, because if your if your containerized application is is affected, it just restarted. You, you, it's just like 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 a like an old Lisp machine. How do you reset it? You just restart. Go ahead. I think part of the problem is that you're never well, the the only way you may be able to prevent it, and I don't know if it's practical or not, would be to write firmware to keep the logging in hardware. Say that again. Well, if you wrote it as for, if you wrote the logging programs themselves, rather a, rather than as Java code in something, let's say that's more like firmware, and it was hardware embedded, then you might have a way to prevent something like this. On the assumption that before it get it made its way to hardware, it would have gone through a different. Yeah. It would have ended up somewhere else. It wouldn't be in cash. And it certainly wouldn't be as prevalent a use case. Because if you're logging everything based on the binaries, whether it's in a PLC or a computer, then that might be your only way to prevent something like this from happening again. And, you know, I've been raising this flag over and over and over and over again until I'm blue in the face. Um, it's when are they going to finally listen that you have to engineer in this kind of cyber protection. And firmware, as far as I know, unless somebody smarter than I has written FPGA or, or EEPROM to be able to do it, it needs to happen. And that's the responsibility of the hardware makers who never get held to account. Rob, no disrespect intended, but no, somewhere I, on I, your bare we metal, make hardware, we you deal should with be this. able we to. Deal with, we deal with this problem. It's an, it's incredibly bad. And our customers pay us good money because their hardware vendors don't have any plans or process to do this. Gee, isn't that an opportunity for you? I wish it was. I wish it was something that like in this conversation rose to the to the oh we shouldn't be installing things we don't have patch and upgrade plans yeah. it, it's i mean this, this is why it's this is why it's fascinating because right the topic today is it was supply chains um and and by the way just as a note next week no meeting the week after that we're doing 2022 predictions so bring your bring your favorite magic quadrant um but the the, the the supply chain aspects, yeah, I got a little plug in. The supply chain aspect here is that um, <laughs> it is that we we if you were to look at this as a regular supply chain, you would be looking for vendor alternatives. You would be asking about, you know, you wouldn't assume that you're just going to build up your inventory and then, we, you know, you wouldn't just build an infinite inventory. Or if you did, you would think about what would happen with your suppliers and who the supply, you know, like, like these normal industrial engineering things, normal business practices that we should be doing. Don't happen. Don't, aren't, aren't, they're not standard process at all, which means to me that where, where we are with IT is like the craftsman, we're still in the craftsman era of IT and we haven't, you know, even gotten the, the foundations of standard business, I think we're getting, you know, it's, it's not exactly a perfect analogy, but, you know, the idea that you're 
putting things out in the field without a supply chain supporting the individual items um, is is problematic. And I, when I when we look at edge, and we yeah. talk to edge people, and they they can't answer this question. Right. I mean, and Joanna, it looks like you do the same thing on industrial and factories and things like that. And when when they're when they don't, they're like, I don't even want to talk about that problem to you. We just you know we can't we can't help them from that perspective um in part because they won't pay money to fix it well the they you're referring to is who rob it's the customers or the, or the manufacturers it's customers manufacturers and systems integrators are actually a big part of all this of this problem too because right. they're not and they, keep, and they keep kicking the can or you know kind of saying that's their their job not mine we we had a conversation I'll be really brief because I know I think other people want to add something too. Uh, and I, I have a hard stop. We had a conversation with a major virtualization platform company that was deploying um, virtualization pods to army bases, hundreds of army bases, which they have a lot of applications that do and they're all silos and they're, they're, they're not. And we basically said, it's going to cost you, you know, a couple thousand dollars per pod put the systems in and get them bootstrapped. They're like, well, that's way too expensive for the install. We're like, well, it's not about the install. It's about building a system that can be patched and updated and maintained. And they're like, we don't care about that. Too expensive for the install. Because their their contract and what they had to deliver was the install, not the, mm-hmm. not the, not the patch and maintenance of the system and upgrades and things like that. Um, and for the, for the cost of what it, takes to send somebody out, fix the environment to do the patch, it's the costs are trivial, but nobody wants to have that conversation at the moment. I and sad I wish Log4J was gonna make people sit back and say, we better fix this because there's another log4j issue coming down the pipe. Um at least one. At least I mean every if you look at the hardware like you know every we've had BIOS BIOS attacks and patches and out of order execution problems every six months. There's some massive BIOS or you know SSD drives that that you know hit a date, hit a number of writes, and just fail because there's a software bug in them. And yeah, patch doesn't you know it's not an OS patch. It's actually a you have to talk run specific firmware updates on a per SSD basis. Right? I mean it's endemic. Um, well, Sean, just before you make your comment, and I'll be very brief. One of the issues that I think is going to make them pay more attention going forward is there's a huge, huge problem right now with counterfeit componentry in electronics because of the supply chain shortages. So you've got every gray market maker and his brother's uncle out there trying to trying to sell product. And the industry itself is kind of taking a collective gasp. So because of that and the log4j, I think that they'll start taking it a little bit more seriously. I'm starting to hear a lot of that coming out of the industry, but I think now is the time for everybody to make a push on the vendor community, on the hardware community to say, you need to get in sync with this because it's easier for hardware to fix it than it would ever be for the software side of the industry to fix it. And make it secure. No, I would. It should be security on chip, not software on chip. Sorry, Sean. No, it's okay. Um, I would just add that, um, and actually, what you said ties into what I was going to say is that the. um, uh, I I think it started in Massachusetts, but uh, there's a variety of lawsuits that have been going on about the right to repair. um, And specifically around automotive industry, and as autos. Uh, cars have become more uh, uh, complex that mm-hmm. um, there's uh, quite a few auto manufacturers that don't even want to share logs with um, the owner of a vehicle, much less the ability to tweak and improve or re- uh, uh, replace certain componentry um, that they require you to have to come back to the auto manufacturer and they replace stuff. You know, you can't fix it. And they say they own it still, even though it's in your hands. Um, yeah. So um, it, without getting into what's going on with Apple and, and other implications that uh, 
the likelihood of these types of um, uh, problems uh, getting into either through gray market and or through the manufacturer and somebody just doesn't bring their car in for uh, a couple of years to get rep repaired or fixed, that they're going to be running around with these vulnerabilities is incredibly likely and it's just going to happen. Um, so how do we deal with it is more of the question, uh, not if, but when, and then the quantity and the, you know, the volume is going to just get worse and worse as cars get more complex and um, there's more options. Cause you know, people love to tinker with cars. I mean, I've always built cars, but I've generally not tinkered with the computer and any of the, the stuff that's the brains of, of the car. But now there are starting with diesels, a whole bunches of uh, different modifications, usually to make the diesel go faster um, and to uh, mess with the fuel ratio because, you know, um, that's what people do, make it uh, go faster. Um, but there's all kinds of other options out there now too. And, you know, uh, states can try to make them illegal or auto manufacturers can complain or whatever, but, you know, people are people. They're going to they're gonna tinker. They're going to add stuff. They're going to change stuff. So it's just going to get, um, worse and those cars run around without getting updated uh, from the auto manufacturer for you know years at least in a lot of cases. So anyway, that's all I want to say. Everybody, I have to I have to drop the bridge today. So um, thank I don't you, Rob. Lecture running over. It's a pleasure. This was a, a good conversation. I, I think this is the nuanced um, discussion about log for J and supply chains that I want. I still want to talk about the physical ones. But don't worry about it. Good. Put it on the Post list. Holiday. Have a great <laughs> holiday. It was fun. Thank Thanks, Rob. Happy holidays. Bye. Thank See you. In, a, in two weeks. See you then. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Wow. We have really been buffeted in December of 2021 with challenges in information technology around supply chains, Amazon outages, Log4j, um, just on top of the normal normal IT challenges that we get in building robust supply chains. And I know this is going to be a key topic for 2022, which means the Cloud 2030 crew will be talking about it and we want to hear your voice. So please join us at the 2030.cloud and be part of these discussions. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.